Open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 1 to 11 this morning. Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. The Christian life is, is seemingly impossible. I mean, we just agree on that, that Christian life is seemingly impossible. On the one hand, we have this call in Scripture to be holy, for I am holy. God tells us that. The New Testament tells us that. Be holy, for I am holy. Scriptures are clear when it comes to sin and repentance that that's to mark the life of a Christian. That we're to be marked not only by lives of holiness, but lives of repentance, confession of sin. Obviously, living lives of holiness is complicated by the fact that we're sinners. So on the one hand, we are to demonstrate the glory of God to the world around us. And on the other, we are so marked by sin that we are corrupted from within. We're changed to the uttermost. Something has happened to us that has fundamentally altered the way that we even see life. And then finally, we have an enemy. As if the other two weren't enough, called to live lives of holiness. We are sinners. We also have an enemy. And the Bible tells us, is set to regularly lob flaming darts against us ensnare us in temptation and sin, bring us down, defame the name of Christ through our actions. So the result of being first, called to be holy as God is holy, second, living in the flesh where we're beset with these sins that so easily entangle us, and third, being regularly attacked by a spiritual enemy who would seek to devour us is that Although we hear of God's love for us in the gospel, what we are then tempted to do is define His love for us by our performance. How well am I doing today? Is God more impressed with me today than He was yesterday? We're tempted to define our righteousness before the Lord by our success here on earth. Obviously, this is complicated by all of those things that I've just said. But then feeling an inability to meet those expectations, the Christian frequently grows despondent. As Jeremy prayed just a minute ago, convinced that, well, the Lord's given up on me surely by now. Christian grows despondent, sad. There are other people who, when they first hear the gospel that's presented, they think to themselves, if I want to be a Christian, then I must do those things. I've got to pattern my life in such a way that I can mirror what I see in these other Christians. And of course, they also find themselves entangled by sin and feel Helpless to get out and similar to the Christian, the life of the Christian seems to be, to them, self-defeating. 
What's the purpose? How could you possibly ever do this? How could you ever live and be holy for God? How could you possibly ever have that set of expectations put on you? In our passage this morning, Paul's going to warn the people of Philippi about a particular group that he doesn't want them to emulate. He wants them to stay clear of. But who insist that the way to righteousness is through obedience to the law. That's how you become righteous. That's how you gain the favor of God, they say, is obedience, strict adherence to the law. Paul's not only going to refute their teaching, but he's going to exhort the Philippians to a better way. And he's going to exhort us to thinking of our salvation in Christ as differently than potentially they would have you believe or that we might be tempted to believe. So I hope that whether you are a Christian who finds him or herself in a despondent state where you're sad or depressed at your state of affairs as you follow Christ or as you tempt to follow Christ, or even if you're not a Christian, maybe you don't quite understand what it means to follow Christ. I pray that through this passage and our study of it this morning, you might have some clarity. Let's look in our passage in Philippians 3, 1 to 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write these same things to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. Look out for dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that this Word, as we have read it, You would help us to understand. We recognize that we are powerless to obey without Your Spirit, so we pray that You would empower us to obey all of the things that you command us to here. Would you convict us, remind us of the sin that still lies in our heart, places where we seek our own self-righteousness, expose those, bring them to light, lead us into repentance, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Remember, Paul's main concern throughout the letter to the Philippians is that Christ be at the center of everything that they do. He tells the Philippians that he wants them to be complete and blameless in the day of Christ, that is, when, when Christ returns. He tells them that God begins the good work in them, and he brings it to completion. In the meantime, he says that he wants them to abound in the love of Christ. 
He wants them to be filled, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. So all of this, he's, he's telling them over and over again, he wants Christ to be at the center of everything that he do, does, everything that they do. But then he rejoices that the gospel is advancing. And we're reminded that he's rejoicing about the gospel's advance in spite of what it means for his own freedom. Paul is in prison when he writes this gospel, and so the gospel's advance is to the expense of his own freedom. But then there's also people that are preaching the gospel to others while he says in chapter 1, verse 17, that they're thinking to afflict him in his imprisonment. So the preaching of the gospel and the expanse of the gospel has not only come at the expense of his own freedom, but it has also come at the expense of his own name. In fact, Paul says in chapter 1 that, that his very identity has been taken over by Christ and he would not have it any other way. He says, for to me to live is Christ. Eventually he tells them in 127, the center of this letter, I think really, the central uh, exhortation here in the letter to the Philippians in 127, to let their manner of life be lived in a manner that's worthy of the gospel of Christ. Meaning that they're to be united. They're to be united in doctrine, united in mission, unafraid of any opposition because they understand what the resurrection of Christ actually means for them. They have no fear of death. So any opposition that would come at the, their preaching of the gospel, they would remain unafraid of that opposition. A manner of life worthy of the gospel of Christ is a life where the whole church is striving side by side for the gospel with one mind. But then lately, Paul has begun encouraging them to emulate those who uh, have lived this kind of Christ-centered life. He's going to charge them with that explicitly in a few verses uh, in a few weeks, but, but he is, he's begun to shift to kind of give them a picture of what a Christ-centered life actually looks like and encouraging them to emulate people that, that do such things. And the first person he tells them to emulate is Jesus himself. Can't get more Christ-centered than Jesus, all right? So emulate Jesus. He tells them to consider everyone else's interests ahead of their own at the beginning of chapter 2. In fact, he tells them in order to do this, you're going to have to have a mind of humility. You're going to have to be super humble in order to consider everyone else's needs ahead of your own. The kind of humility that you're going to have to have is similar to the humility that we see embodied for us in the person of Christ who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. Last week we saw two individuals that Paul is sending to the church at Philippi. First being Timothy, who has a genuine concern for them. He's been faithful in the preaching of God's Word and will be faithful to them in the preaching of God's Word. And that's how they can see his genuine concern for them is in his faithfulness to deliver God's Word to them. He tells them to honor Timothy. The second is Epaphroditus, a true servant of God who nearly died in his faithfulness, in his service to God. He picked up everything, left and went to minister to Paul. And he tells them, receive Epaphroditus and honor such men because he nearly died in his service to the gospel. So he's telling the Philippian church, emulate people like this. But then we get to today's passage. It begins with a word of warning about some people that you are not to emulate. 
He first gives this command. You see there in verse 1, rejoice in the Lord. But there are those who are influential in the church. And if you follow these, he says, rejoicing in the Lord is going to be impossible. So his warning starts in verse 2, and it's really a charge not to emulate these kinds of individuals. And he even says, to write these same things to you is no trouble for me, and it's safe for you. He's encouraging them yet again. He obviously started the church, so he said a number of things. So we're not sure if he's reminding them of something he's told them previously, or if he's just reiterating the same things that he said to them already. He wants to remind them, rejoice in the Lord and stay away from the dogs. He calls these people dogs. He says, and the evildoers and those who who mutilate the flesh. This isn't three groups of people. This is all one group of people known as the Judaizers that are infamous for trailing behind Paul as he has preached the gospel from church to church. They trail behind and they spread a false gospel. They convince the people of these churches that they are to obey the Jewish law, that in order to follow Christ, they have to first become Jews. They had to keep the law like good Jews, and then they were allowed to follow the teachings of Jesus. It was only for the Jewish people, not for also Gentiles. In order to access Jesus, you had to first go through the law. Keep in mind that these Jews are calling themselves Christians. They're telling everyone, we are Christians, but we are true Christians. You have to first become Jews, and then you can become Christians. And they're they're poisoning these Gentile Christian congregations with false doctrine. So Paul is writing a word of warning to the church at Philippi about these people, and he begins by calling them dogs, which is particularly ironic because that's a term that Jews usually used for Gentiles. And here Paul is applying it to these people who are supposedly proper Jews. Then notice what he says, they mutilate the flesh. And then he follows that up in the next verse by saying, we are the circumcision. He refuses to call them circumcised, which is a, a point of pride amongst the Jews. This is, he, he's refusing to call them circumcised. He calls them mutilators of the flesh. The word circumcision, he, he's making a play on words here. The word circumcision literally means to cut around. And what Paul is saying about them is literally they cut against. That's the word he uses. They're they're ones that cut against instead of cutting around. So what he's saying is essentially the difference between surgery and stabbing. Both use a knife, but they're night and day different. What Paul is saying about these individuals is that what they call circumcision is actually murder. They're killers of the gospel. They're spiritual murderers. They're spreading false doctrine and they're leading people into a lie. So Paul is painting a bleak picture of these people, but then he contrasts them with people that are the real circumcision. Paul calls calls Christians the real circumcision. He says, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God. Christians are the real circumcision, whether they've actually had an operation done or not. That's irrelevant. They're Real, the real circumcision, because they worship by the power of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling Holy Spirit who has circumcised the heart. And what does that lead them to do? Not put confidence in the flesh, but glory in, that is, boast in Christ. 
They have absolutely no confidence in fleshly things. But these dogs go around cutting their flesh and calling themselves Christian. So you see what Paul is already doing here. He's setting up two categories of people. The first is a person that puts confidence in the flesh. And they think to themselves, I can do enough good things that God will honor my actions. Or sometimes frequently in our culture, and maybe even in our church, are those that fear that God has rejected them because they have not performed up to His standards. That surely this sin is the one that cuts us short. It's the same category of people that boast in the actions of the flesh and put confidence in the, in the actions of the flesh. But then the second group of people that he's setting up are the people that put no confidence in the flesh and all the confidence in Christ and say, because I am a wretched sinner, I need Christ to save me. The former have a lot of outward appearances. And all these outward appearances look a whole lot like Christianity. But this person doesn't even come close to the real thing. The latter doesn't find his life really remarkable at all and not worth emulating. But then Paul does something somewhat unexpected in verse 4. He says there, look with me, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So basically Paul is going to say a, a couple of things here. First, he's saying, I know what these people are like because I used to be one. First. And second, none of the things that I'm saying are because I'm jealous of their pedigree. None of them can touch me. So, let's just play their game for just a second, and let's see where this ends. He then goes into a list of all the reasons that he could boast about his earthly pedigree. Look in verses 4 and 5. First, he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. And what does that mean? You understand that if he's circumcised on the eighth day, that has nothing to do with his choice. Right? He was subject to his parents' wishes, which is precisely the point. He's saying, I am from an a earthly lineage of Jews who were faithful adherents to the law. I was raised in a noble family. A family who followed the law to its letters. Second, he says, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, the tribe of Benjamin and Judah, were two of the twelve tribes, and they were the only two that stayed true to the Davidic line. In fact, the tribe of Benjamin kind of got absorbed into the tribe of Judah to some extent. And so, the line of Benjamin and the line of Judah were, were seen basically as faithful adherents to God's promised line, the Davidic line. While the other ten tribes ran off and, I, and seeking idols, uh, rejected the Lord, the tribe of Benjamin and Judah stayed faithful to David's line and to the king that sat on David's throne. So Paul is not only saying, I'm from a faithful family, I'm also from a faithful tribe. As to the law, he says third, as to the law of Pharisee, 
Now, Pharisees were well-respected. Don't think Pharisee in the Gospels. Think Pharisee as it would be understood by a Jew. This isn't a shameful thing. He doesn't say this tongue-in-cheek. This isn't a punchline. His audience wouldn't have seen it that way. It carries serious weight. I didn't just know the law. I was such a faithful adherent to the law. I was a Pharisee. I was an expert in the law. I not only knew it, I taught it. Look at this fourth one. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. He was so zealous for God and for Judaism that he was determined to squash out anyone that would seek to threaten the fabric of Judaism. He's willing to do what many others in Judaism were not willing to do. Can you imagine? Just think about that for just a second. Sect rises up that threatens your religion. Other people are complaining about it. Who's willing to take up a sword and chop off heads? Who's willing to pick up stones and kill somebody because of it? Paul says, that's the kind of zeal I had. While everybody else around me was not so zealous, that's the kind of zeal I had. This thing really mattered to me. No one was a better Jew than I was. No one was willing to go to the lengths that I was willing to go to to defend God and to defend my religion. Fifth, look at what he says. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now he doesn't mean he didn't sin. He means under the law. He was blameless. He was righteous under the law, meaning that he followed the law perfectly even when it came to sacrifices for atonement. He did everything that was prescribed for him to the letter of the law. But then pay close attention to what he says in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Here's the way we often think of that statement. We interpret it in our heads to mean the good things in my life don't mean anything anymore. Right? What I had gained, I counted as lost. And they don't matter to me anymore. Being of the tribe of Benjamin, being a Hebrew of Hebrews, being zealous, all those things, they don't really matter to me anymore. That's not what he's saying. He said the gains... I counted as loss. All the religious pedigree, all the things that were to my advantage that I thought were gaining me something, contributing positively to my righteousness before God, all of the things that I thought were moving me along the road, I came to realize they actually were counting against me, not for me. They were actually working to my detriment. I counted them as loss. He says in verse 8, I count count everything as loss. I counted them in 7, I count them in 8. The past tense and the present. If you've ever been stuck in the mud in a car, you might know this feeling. The first time you're stuck, It usually only takes about one time to learn the lesson, but the first time you're stuck, there's a temptation to take your right foot, put it on the gas pedal, and gun it, right? Because you think, well, if this doesn't work, this is bound to work. 
remember Andrea called me one day. I was at work. She said, the, the minivan stuck. I tried to hit the gas, but it stuck good. When I got there, it was buried down to the door, practically. <laughs> Seems to be all that it does. So similarly, Paul, it's as if he's looking at the, the, the speedometer on the dashboard, and he's got blinders on, and all he can see is the speedometer. And he's hitting the gas of his religion. And he's seeing blamelessness and zeal and persecutor of the church and tribe of Benjamin. And he says to himself, oh wow, I'm really going fast here. But then when Christ comes to him on the road to Emmaus, the road to Damascus. Sorry. Christ also came on the road to Emmaus at some other point, okay? (laughs) And he came to him on the road to Damascus and pulls him out of the car and opens his eyes, ironically actually blinding him, but opens his eyes to the spiritual reality of what's going on, he sees that all of his pushing against the gas pedal of his religion has only served to bury him deeper in the mud. He can't get out. There is no getting out. There is no work that you could possibly do to unbury yourself. It's pointless. When the blinders comes off, come off upon meeting Christ, he sees that what he thought had been progress on the road of righteousness only buried him deeper. This is Paul's list that he would give someone if they were to ask him, what makes you a good Jew, Paul? Well, how do we know you're a good Jew? Tell me one thing. You want one thing? I'll give you five things. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm from this family. I'm a Bible-toting, righteousness-seeking individual, and I would defend God even if it means killing those that oppose Him. All of these things make me a good Jew. In fact, all of them essentially ensure that when the Messiah's kingdom come, I am going to be in it. I'm going to be right there in the center at His right hand. In pews every Sunday are countless people attempting to mimic the actions of Christians by going to church. They may even read their Bibles. They go on mission trips. They might be deacons or, God help us, even pastors. They do what they think are good, righteous, religious things. I abstain from alcohol. I'm a good Baptist. I go to Sunday school. I refuse to curse. I might even vote Republican. All of them in what they think is duty to the faith. What makes you a Christian? Well, you might say, I go to church, I read my Bible, I don't drink, curse, or chew, and I don't date girls that do. Unfortunately, it misses the point. I'm not a Christian because I do. I'm a Christian so I do. I'm not a Christian because I do. There is no work I could possibly ever accomplish. I couldn't stomp the gas pedal hard enough. 
to earn God's favor. I'm a Christian, so I do. The primary identifier of one who has a Christ-centered righteousness is that he has a heart that has changed in its affections. Previously, the affections were for the things of the world, and this person now has affections for Christ Himself. Now, you might say, I thought God wants us to do good things. I thought He wants us to obey. He does. In fact, He doesn't just want your obedience, He commands your obedience. And make no mistake about that. But that's not what we're talking about here. Prior to genuine conversion, all of these works of so-called righteousness amounted to Paul as fleshly confidence. I can do it. These are the reasons that God would be pleased with me. If I can clean up my life good enough, then God will accept me is how the thinking goes. Except for Paul, he was convinced he had cleaned up his life good enough. But these things only buried him deeper when it came to knowing Christ. Because if that were the case, then why would you need Jesus? Why would Jesus even be necessary? And to Paul, he wasn't. I'm blameless under the law, all by myself. In fact, he says in verse 8, not only my religious pedigree, but everything in life too. All possessions, they also became lost to him. They were meaningless. Now, all of this would be easy to say if Paul were living in an ivory tower, living on a pile of money, said, ah, everything's lost compared to the worth of knowing Christ. But he's actually illustrating the value of this principle. All things he has considered loss in comparison to knowing Christ. Paul is in prison a number of times. He's in prison now as he writes this letter. Paul has taken beatings, shipwrecks, and all for the sake of other people coming to know Christ, to share the gospel. So he's actually living out the value of this principle by the way that he lives. That for Christ's sake, he says, I have suffered the loss of all things. But he says, what were they? I came to realize they were excrement. He says rubbish, or it's translated rubbish. That's to clean it up for the children. He literally means feces. Garbage. Trash. All of the trinkets, all of the toys, having plenty in life. When I lost it all, I realized, oh, it was a heaping, steaming pile of dung to begin with. Paints a bleak picture for us as Americans who live in the lap of luxury and prosperity. All of the trinkets and toys that we collect. Feces. Following his conversion, he says he's since suffered the loss of all things that he once thought valuable. Again, that's not just personal achievements like he says in the previous 
bit of the passage, but also the wealth and possessions. He lost them all only to realize that they're garbage. So this seismic shift has taken place in Paul's mind where he realizes that one, that his own self-righteousness is of no use in in the coming judgment. As he stands before God in God's courtroom, his own righteous works don't help him at all. This is a common misconception that people have as they think about the way that they live their lives. If I can clean myself up, God will appreciate me. God will like me. God will accept me. But what you don't realize is that your righteousness is measured against His righteousness, not against the righteousness of the person sitting next to you. If you measure your righteousness against theirs, well, maybe you're a pretty good guy. But if you hold your standard of holiness up next to the Lord's, It doesn't measure up. And if you're judged on that standard, what good is your zealousness going to provide for you on the day of judgment? So Paul has realized it's worthless. But second, he's realized that the true value of everything else in comparison to Christ, that's what he's seen. Here's what everything else in my life is worth in comparison to knowing Christ. You see, this is where Christ-centered righteousness actually lives. This is what Christ-centered righteousness actually is. When you begin to understand, I cannot provide enough good on my own to earn salvation, or to ever put God in my debt, or to ever be cleaned up enough that God would ever love me. And then I also see that by comparison to knowing Christ, everything else in my life is really not worth much. Here's everything that I could possibly earn that might last for 80 years, if I'm lucky. And then on the other end, here's all the things that Christ could give me that are worth an eternal weight of glory. Which one is more valuable? Well, that's easy, and I hate math. But I can do that math. Eternity versus 80? That's an easy choice. This is what genuine conversion, though, actually looks like. We have to remind ourselves, this is not professional Christianity. Everything that Paul's writing here, it seems like, oh man, Paul was amazing. No! He's telling you what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is one whose righteousness is Christ-centered. Someone who's given up on proving to God that he's worth saving. And instead has recognized what's true. That he's a sinner stuck in the mud. And that no matter what I gain here in the mud, it's worthless. And no matter how hard I stomp stomp the gas pedal, it's only going to bury me deeper. He says, all things are rubbish in comparison to gaining, that I might gain Christ, he said. But what does it mean to gain Christ? Look at verse, at the end of verse 8 there. He says, in order that I may gain Christ. There's a couple things that he means by that. Gaining Christ, literally, he says, is to trust in Christ's righteousness. First, he says in verse 9, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, but that which comes through faith in Christ. So, to gain Christ 
would be to trust fully in, in His work on the cross. In other words, to gain Christ is to say, I've given up on providing my own righteousness. Instead, I want to look to the cross and I want to say all the righteousness that could ever be provided, that was ever needed to enter into the kingdom of heaven, all the righteousness that could ever possibly be earned was earned by Jesus on my behalf. He lived perfectly because I never could. He was the one that was clean because I can't get clean enough. He was the one that lived perfectly for me. And yet instead of taking those righteous rewards, he got on the cross and suffered the wrath of God on my behalf. So now all the punishment that I deserve, Christ took for me. And he gave me the rewards of his righteousness. So I'm not working to prove myself valuable to God. God sees me as valuable through Christ. Because of Christ. That is a righteousness that's founded on Christ. It's not trying to get ourselves out of the mud. It's recognizing that the only way out of the mud is literally for a tow truck to come and pick us up out of the mud and put us on solid ground. It's only then that our acts of obedience that are empowered by His Spirit actually please God. Before then, they only contribute negatively. They only contribute to our own self-righteousness and building ourselves up. But once we understand that it's Christ who has picked us up out of the mud, it's Christ who has set us on solid ground, it's then that He has empowered us to actually live in a a life pleasing to the Lord. So now a life of obedience is not in order to gain God's favor, but because God's favor is already given in Christ. So he says, first, it's to trust in Christ's righteousness. That's what it means to gain Christ. It's to trust in his righteousness. But second, he says, to share in his sufferings. He says in verse 10, that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Now be careful. This is where Christianity gets dangerous. Okay? Not only am I taking Christ's righteousness and working by the Spirit that He has empowered me to live by. But it's caused me to want to share in His sufferings. Not only taking the righteousness that Christ has given to me by His life, but now I'm actually desiring to suffer like He suffered. I want to become like Him in every respect. That means actually enduring the kind of suffering that He endured. As the culture around me continues to turn up the heat on the persecution of the church, if someone's wanting to put me in jail or beat me or chop off my head, it means that I'm becoming more like Christ, and in which case, bring it on. Can you imagine saying that? Do you want to say that? But that's what it means. That our righteousness being founded on Him is meaning we want to become more like Him even in, if it means suffering. More than anything, I want my actions, what I do and what I don't do, to mimic the very nature and attitude of Jesus Christ in every capacity. I want to respond to my own persecution the way He did, saying instead of, you'll get yours, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. Paul's writing this from prison, remember. 
But then third, he says, to attain the resurrection from the dead. So Paul now realizes that all of the things that he could ever have in this life, whether it's a good name or countless possessions, actually has no lasting value. Because all of this is about the kingdom that Christ is going to establish when he comes back one day and raises the dead. And we live when he remakes this place on a reconstituted earth with Christ as our king for all of eternity. And so Paul is saying, all I want is that. I will live forever with Christ and all I want is that. And so all of the things that I could possibly ever gain, all of the things that could ever happen to me are only temporary. All I have my eyes set on is life eternal with Christ in the resurrection. Everything else has no value. So notice in verse 11, Paul is humbly saying here in verse 11, if somehow... Literally, if somehow I may attain the resurrection. This is a statement of humility. Far from being blameless, the blameless one in his own self-righteousness in verse 6, now he's in 11 and saying, I can't even fathom how Christ or why Christ would save a persecutor of the church. Why would he save a self-righteous zealot like me? Somehow attaining the resurrection. This passage is really well known to many people. Probably a lot of these verses were memory verses for you growing up. You probably remember particularly verse 7. Everything I have gained, I count as loss the sake of knowing Christ. Many people know this passage. When you say Philippians 3, a lot of people's minds will go, oh yeah, I know that's the one. I count everything as lost. Few people grasp Paul's point because his point is in verse 1. All the way back at the very beginning, what does he say? Finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. That's his point. All of this that he's gone to, counting things as loss for the sake of knowing Christ, looking toward the resurrection that I may attain the resurrection of the dead, all of this is supporting his command to you to rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. Why? Because when you understand what God has done for you through Christ, how could it produce anything other than rejoicing? If you truly grasp it, if you've actually gotten out of the car and you've seen how deep in the bog you were, how could it not lead to anything other than rejoicing when you see yourself lifted out of the muck and the mire and put on solid ground? Nothing I could ever do could ever save me, and yet still. Not only that, everything that I did do was making me worse. Building up my own self-righteousness, and for some reason, Christ came and ripped open the door and pulled me out. How 
could it not lead to anything other than rejoicing? Because you might say at the end of that, well, why did he do that? Why did he save me? Why did he show me my sin? Why is it that I'm here on a Sunday morning singing praise to the Lord, about to take the Lord's Supper? Why am I the one here doing that? And the answer that you come to time and again in Scripture is grace. It's grace. So, what do I do with that? Somebody just comes to you and gives you something you could never repay? What do I do with that? To which Paul tells them, rejoice. Rejoice. Be thankful. And rejoice. And here is the center of Christ-centered righteousness. Knowing that I... I couldn't please the Lord, even if I wanted to. Christ has enabled it. So I rejoice. Praise God, brothers and sisters. He saved us. And for those of you who are in here who are lost, don't believe the gospel of Christ, who don't yet include themselves in the family of God, or think to themselves that God surely hates me. You need to understand a couple of things. First of all, there was a man named Jesus 2,000 years ago who died for your sin. Don't say to yourself, God hated you. If indeed he sent Christ to die for you. Second, what happens now? So you see yourself stuck in the muck and the mire? What happens now? Trust Christ. Repent. Confess your sins. The Bible tells us it's abundantly clear if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. He tells us that if that's true of you, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So you see yourself caught in the muck and the mire? Don't think to yourself, God hates me. He's offering you a way out. Don't wait. In a moment, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. I want to pray first, and then we're going to go right into it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for your word of Christ-centered righteousness in Philippians to come straight to us and penetrate our hearts. For those of us who have a rock-hard heart set on sin, I pray that you would shatter it to pieces. Pull us out of the car. Show us what our so-called righteousness is worth and set us on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. 
for those of us who are convinced that because of our sin, you hate us. Demonstrate to us your love for us through Christ as we take this Lord's Supper. Pray that you would produce in us hearts of rejoicing that desire nothing but obedience and repentance of our sin. Only you can lead that, and I pray that you would. In Jesus' name, amen.